the title of our sermon series at the moment is um, Plot Lines. And we've been focusing on the biblical themes, the plot lines that surround Jesus and the good news that he brings. And the series started in February and it covers eight weeks to the end of March. And thus far we have had five messages and they have been awesome. For those that don't know, we've had the redemption plan. We've had the bride of Christ. We've had five key covenants, although I do believe that there were actually seven that Sam shared. We've had the abiding presence of God, and last week was the Supreme Godhead, when Malcolm, along with his visual presentations, um, he focused on the Trinity. And if you missed it, there has been lots of um, lots of positive feedback from it, so I would recommend and encourage you to listen to the podcast, indeed for all the messages, because they are all linked, they are connected. God is speaking to us through the messages. And you can hear the pod, listen to the podcast um, from our website, and it's www.onechurch.uk. So today's uh, message is the perfect justice of God. And I have to confess that this message has given me a certain amount of angst through the last week, if not two. Um, and that's because it has been a while, as Malcolm said, since we've been called upon to prepare messages. And also the subject content, because we're going from Genesis to Revelation, it is broad, it is deep, and it's been hard to work out quite how to make it simple to present and for people to understand. And yes, some people would say, well, you know, it's like riding a bike. You just get back on and you just get going. Well, I have fallen off my bike a few times this week, and the journey has certainly been interesting and varied. But I do pray that the Lord will enable me to share what I have prepared, that he'll enable me to share it in a way that is concise and coherent. I pray that he will give you wisdom, understanding and revelation, and that you will draw deeper into him. And I pray that he will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to say, I pray that I'll be able to do it justice, but I wasn't sure if that was okay, but I think it might be. Before I go further, I'm going to share with you one of the things that the Lord did drop into my memory. Um, and some of you may already be aware of the story, but again, for those who aren't, it's about a Sunday school class. And in this class, there were a number of children, and I think the teacher must have been doing something about Noah's Ark, but the teacher was sharing, showing pictures of um, lots of different animals. And at one point, she puts up a picture it's actually of a squirrel and throughout the class while she had been showing pictures the children were answering but suddenly this squirrel appears and they say nothing and the teacher can't understand what the problem is because it's like it's a squirrel and after a little while a child puts their hand up and she says well okay yeah what, what, what do you want to say and they say it's Jesus and again the teacher's thinking why would you say that it's not it's not Jesus it's, it's a squirrel but the child says, well, my mum told me that the answer is always Jesus. And so the moral of that story today, or the principle of that applies. If you remember nothing else, apart from what, God, what Malcolm's told you to remember, if you remember nothing else about my message, please remember that the answer is always Jesus. And in many respects, as Jesus said, after he had read the scroll from Isaiah, he folded up and he sat down and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I, in many respects, would like to be able to say, well, actually, this has been the squirrel picture and the answer is always Jesus has been fulfilled today. And I would like to sit down and perhaps say nothing more. 
But I have prepared stuff and it has cost me so. And I know the Lord would like you to hear it because he's told me to tell it. He's told me to hold nothing back. He's told me not to cut it short. So if you need to leave, you just need to leave um, respectfully. Right and fair behaviour, right and fair or just behaviour is something that everybody wants. And no one wants to be treated in an unfair way or in an unreasonable manner. And we're happy and content when the right thing is done. But when it's not and an injustice occurs, we want someone to take responsibility. We want someone to be accountable. We want things to be put right. And I'm sure everyone has a story about um, how such and such did something and it was so unjust and it was wrong. Um, obviously, we've got stories in the news at the moment. We've got Partygate with Boris Johnson. People want him to be accountable. Whether he was right or wrong, who knows? We have the issue with Gary Lineker. Is it right or wrong? Who knows? But we all know when we feel injustice and we want something done about it. But from a spiritual perspective, I have been asked today to focus on the question of God's plan of justice for all mankind and how he brings it about. And having completed my ponderings, my musings, I have three main points for those of you who like to take notes. I have three main points. I try to be good luck, Brother Jeff. But there are a number of sub points. But as I said, we're looking at the Bible for all the books from Genesis to Revelation. So along with some examples and illustrations, um, I'm going to identify passages and scriptures that uh, some will appear on the screen and some may not, but they're going to reveal who God is and how he carries out his role. They're also going to provide you with some insight on the rules and the laws that God established, as well as the respective penalties and potentially the aftermath of that. And I'm also going to look at what I would call an antithetical or complete contrast to seemingly grave injustice. So my first point is in two parts. And I'm speaking about the fact that God's plan of justice for all mankind in this part is wholly in keeping with his identity. So our identity informs us and it tells other people who we are and what we are. And the Bible reveals that God has many names. He has a plethora of names, many names. And I think somewhere I've seen that there are about 750 names that appear in the Bible. But that's something you can perhaps count for yourself. But in the context of justice, I'm, I'm going to identify a few of his names that are particularly relevant and that lay a foundation. So when we open the Bible at the book of Genesis, we're introduced to God, Elohim, his Hebrew name, as creator. Verse 1 of the Bible in Genesis says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the chapter goes on to explain that he created the sun, the moon and the stars. He created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all the living creatures of both land and sea, as well as man, mankind. He made them male and female. That's us. God made us. And as we move further into Genesis, God revealed himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. When he appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1, he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And when he was blessing Jacob, Genesis 28, 3, Isaac said, May God Almighty bless you. And when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, he said, I am God Almighty. They all knew God as a God of power, as a God of might, as a God of strength and a God of endurance. 
And as we move on to Exodus, at the burning bush, God tells Moses that his name is, I am who I am. And this is often referred to as one of his covenantal names. And it speaks about the relationship that he has with his people. And when he promised, okay, so he told them that, he said that to um, Moses when he was promising that he would be with them. But with this name, God, with this name, I am who I am, God also declared that he was the eternal one, the one who is uncaused and independent. All other creatures like us, we depend, we are in debt to him as the creator for our existence. But he simply is the great I am. He just exists. There is no one before him and there is no one after him. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. And as well as knowing him as El Shaddai, Abraham also called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. We see that in Genesis 21.3. He told everyone about the master of eternity, who not only lives forever, but meets the needs of his people throughout all eternity. In Psalm 90, Moses declares that even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Daniel refers to him as the ancient of days. God has certainly been around for a very long time an infinite amount of time. And as you heard last week, the Israelites have what's called the Shema. It's the basic confession of faith in Judaism. In Deuteronomy 6.4 they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and it means the Lord alone. There is only one God. The Lord himself declares the same to Cyrus when he says, and reiterates to him in Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. There is no other person, object or God that can compare with him. At Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, Moses explains to the Israelites that the Lord our God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. God is the sovereign Lord. He is the just and a great king. And indeed in Psalm 94, the psalmist calls him. He calls him to rise up, O judge of the earth. He is expressly called the judge, the one who establishes true justice. So to recap, our God, the Lord, Elohim, he is creator God, our maker. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty, a God of power, might, strength and endurance. He is the everlasting God, the eternal one, from everlasting to everlasting. He is God alone. He is the only God to whom no person or thing can compare. He is the sovereign God, the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the judge, the one who establishes true justice. He alone has the right, he has the authority to rule, and he alone is the one to determine how things should be. And with an identity such as his, who in their right mind would even think or dare to question him? And Moses puts it succinctly in his song at Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, and that I think should appear on the screen. He says, Ascribe greatness to our God, his rock, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. 
a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Many of you may remember that there was a song that we used to sing, Ascribe Greatness to Our God the Rock. Amen. So my next point, still the first one, sub-point two. So there is um, another relevant name um, by which God is known, and that is Yahweh. So I'm now talking about the fact that God's plan of justice for all mankind is wholly in keeping with his character and nature. So I'm looking at his name, Yahweh. It's Yahweh in Hebrew or Jehovah in English. And this is a name that reflects God by revealing the manner and the way in which he does things. So in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai, and again, I believe there is a slide. It says, verse 6 and 7, he says, The Lord, well, God, he proclaims his name to, to Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we can see a number of things in his name. In his mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't give us the punishment that we deserve. By his grace, instead, we get what we don't deserve. We get unmerited favour. And by his grace, he waits. He waits so that he can be gracious. We want justice now. We want someone to be accountable now. But God says, wait. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not for us to take things into our own hands. We need to wait. He is the only one who can give or mete out the right punishment. If left to our own devices, we're likely to go too far. And that's one of the reasons why they said an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. So if somebody hurt your eye, you had the right to hurt their eye, but no more. If it was the tooth, you could do, do something to the tooth, but no more. But obviously Jesus changes all that and he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus calls us to go the second mile. If someone slaps you on one cheek, then you give them the other one. If they want your cloak, then you give them the tunic too. He calls us to go this, the, the second mile, and that is hard. So he's saying, don't, don't even do an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but just take it. Take it and give them more. It's a hard call and a tough call, but it's a call nevertheless. But from his name, we also see that he suffers long. And in his suffering, in his long suffering, God is patient. He, ensure, he endures trouble and delay without becoming angry. He has a long fuse. He is slow to anger. We're told that in Psalm 103 verse 8. But yet still, God abounds in goodness and mercy. While he waits, he takes a long time before he gets angry. But nevertheless, he waits and he's still good to us. We also see that his reference to mercy is reiterated. He extends it to thousands, and thousands is a vast number. It's a vast number. And note that he mentions it before his wrath. He talks about keeping mercy for thousands, 
before he talks about wrath. His, his greater priority is mercy. God is forgiving. He pardons offences. He stops being angry and resentful. And equally, he does, he does hold the guilty accountable. They don't get off scot-free. But his punishment is limited. It is only to the third and fourth generation. And on the basis that God forgives, the guilty must be those who don't seek his forgiveness. And that makes them the unrepentant. Everybody has a choice. He's given us free will. And there is just one other thing that I would say about um, this passage and its location, because this is where Moses has said, show me your glory, show me your glory. He's asking something of God that maybe he doesn't have a right, well, he probably doesn't have a right. As I've said, God is God Almighty. But we see the graciousness of God in the exchange. As I say, we started looking at some of the, the many names of God and we saw that he is great, he is powerful, he has might, he is awesome and in his sovereignty, but yet he tenderly relates to Moses and he grants his request. Though he is the high and lofty one, the creator of the universe, he still condescends to be with us. In Psalm 8, David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Yet you have crowned him with glory and caused him to reign. God loves us, and he wants to be with us. And we need to keep hold of that. We need to never forget that. That is ultimately what he wants, relationship. Point two. God's plan of justice is all about relationship. It's all about the way that we relate to him. And it's all about the way that we relate to one another. If I was going to give this a title, this part, it would be the wages of sin. So by way of a definition for justice, in the context of this message, I see that it's got two aspects, almost like two prongs. And one is that justice is concerned with fair and reasonable behaviour. It's about doing the right thing. It's about righteousness. And the other prong is where justice steps in to correct. Justice steps in to redress the balance. And so I'm going to look um, at what God expected in relation to him and others, both before the law and after and also how he redresses the balance. And there are lots of little points here, but you'll have to work them out for yourself. Um, so looking before the law, the way that we relate to God before the law. So when we look at examples from before the law of Moses, we can see that there is a theme, and that theme is one of death and penalty, um, when God's expectations of righteousness are not met. So in Genesis 2, we've got Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, God followed through on the warning that they would die. After he cursed them and the serpent, he banished them from the garden so that they would no longer have the opportunity to live forever. They were eternally separated from him. So it was not a physical death, it was spiritual. But note in verse 21 that they were made, God made tunics of skin for them, which means that there must have been the shedding of blood in order for him to do that. He must have killed an animal. We hold that thought. In Genesis 6, 5, when God saw the wickedness of mankind, when he saw that it was great in the earth, he used the flood to destroy not only man, but every living creature. Only Noah, a just and perfect man, 
a genuinely righteous man was saved along with his family and the livestock that were in the ark. They were the remnant that God used to begin again. Again, at Genesis 8.20, we're told that one of the first things that Noah did when he came out of the ark was to make and he built an altar and he made an offering. And something that's hit me quite big, and I'm not quite sure entirely why, um, is the fact that that offering was significant. He made an offering. He took one of every, every animal and he offered it to God. I'm thinking we often um, preach and learn about the size of the ark that he made and the time it would have taken him to build that ark. How many creatures were on that ark? How many different kinds of animal were on that ark? There must have been a phenomenal amount, but he took one of every kind and he sacrificed it to the Lord. He made burnt offerings to the Lord. It was only him and his family that were saved. That was eight people. But he, he made burnt offerings to the Lord. We think when Solomon was um, dedicating the temple, he made an awesome sacrifice. And the glory of God came. But Noah took one of every kind of animal, the scripture says. I'm thinking that's a load of animals. And he sacrificed them to the Lord. I just... I, as I said, I can't say more than it's just awesome and it's hit me in some way. I've not seen it. You know, you read the Bible many times and suddenly you get, you see something, you think, I've never seen that before. Well, over the last couple of days, I'm like, really? Every, one of every animal that he sacrificed unto the Lord. So again, there was a huge shedding of blood, a huge amount of blood that was shed. When we get to Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of its depravity, because of its sexual immorality. The Lord rained down fire and brimstone from heaven to punish the city. But for the sake of Abraham, Lot and his family were spared. They were saved. But his two sons-in-law, they didn't believe that it was actually going to happen. So they stayed. They didn't escape. They died there. But also in disobedience, Lot's wife looked back. She was told not to, but she looked back. So she became a pillar of salt. Her life ended. In Exodus 3, God was displeased with the Egyptian oppression of his people, so he killed all the firstborn in the last of ten plagues. I think he's given them quite a bit of grace there. They had a number of plagues. He's left it a long time before he got to the point of death. But the Israelites' firstborn was saved, and they were saved by the blood of the lambs. They were saved because they obediently put the blood of the lambs on the doorposts and lintels of their houses. God had told them to do this. And that's, the blood there was a sign that the destroyer should pass over. And that's where the introduction of the Passover comes. But again, there was the shedding of blood. So whether it be individuals, mankind, local cities or other nations, even though he was also a gracious God in waiting and saving a remnant, God did follow through with his warnings of death when disobedience, uncleanness, sexual immorality and oppression prevailed. Years ago when I was at work, I had a conversation with um, a colleague and it, she, was, she came to my desk and we were there for about an hour. And um, I don't know how the conversation started, but basically I was saying that, you know, God will do it. But I don't think she was a Christian. And, um, you know, there will be a time at the end and God will do it. And she was like, well, you know, I don't think he's not going to, he's not going to kill all those people. He's not going to do that because, you know, he, he loves us. God loves us. But the, I think we were probably both right in the sense that God does love us and he does want to save us. But there is only so long before he will do what he said he will do. 
So after the law of Moses, once the children of Israel had left Egypt via the Exodus, God introduced um, expressed instructions on how to properly relate to him, how to worship him. And hence we have the Ten Commandments with its many supplements and um, rules and regulations. And at the same time, the sacrificial system was introduced with its various offerings. And at Leviticus 17.11, we're told about the sacrificial system. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So even before the law, we saw the three points where there was bloodshed. And God had atoned for their souls, but it's not expressly stated. The blood has been shed. Atonement has come. But what we also see even after the law is that the theme of death continues. We've got the golden calf incident at Exodus 32. That even as Moses was bringing the law, the tablets of the, the, tablets of the law down the mountain, the children of Israel were, um, had, had broken the second cup. They'd broken the second commandment because they'd started to build the golden calf. And what we saw, we see, is that 3,000 people died. And the Lord sent a plague afterwards. People died. Death. We've got Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They were Aaron's sons. The priesthood was just beginning. But they disobeyed. They were presumptuous. They offered what's called profane fire. They didn't do it as God had said. And they didn't do it when he said. They took the fire from the wrong place and did it whenever they felt they should. And God says, verse 3, he says, By those, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. He held his peace because his two sons had died, and he was told not to mourn. But they had been disobedient to God. They had not respected his holiness. In Numbers 14, we see that the children of Israel refused to enter Canaan. They didn't believe him, they didn't have faith, and they didn't trust him. That's why they didn't go. And so he left them wandering in the wilderness for 70 years so that an entire generation would be wiped out before they went across. He said, you're not coming in. Moses also disobeyed God. He did what he thought he should do instead of what he was actually told to do. And this is Moses, the same Moses who, to whom he showed his glory. He had an intimate relationship with him, a close relationship, but he says, you've disobeyed and it's not okay. He says, you did not hallow me in the sight of the people. God wants to be glorified and if we don't do what he says, it's death. He says to Moses, you're not coming in, you're going to die on this side of the Jordan. So again, across society, whether it be individuals or leaders, whole generations, we see the death penalty is carried out. God shows no partiality. And whether we're overtly aware of it or not, he is a jealous God and his holiness must be respected. So looking beyond the law, there are countless examples throughout the rest of the Old Testament where God's commands to pe for people to respond to him rightly were ignored or transgressed. And you can go through it yourself, read at your leisure, but gain wisdom. We see in the Bible that God continually sent his prophets to speak to his people as well as to other nations, calling them to turn and repent, calling them to him to turn and repent. And most notably, whilst dismissing Israel's empty um, and ritualistic worship, he says at Amos 5.24, But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. He didn't want people to just be coming along and going through the motions. 
He wanted heart engagement. And in the New Testament at the time of the inception of the new church, we see in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they separately lied, individually lied to the Holy Spirit, and immediately they dropped down dead. And a new era, I think what they, the Lord is saying, was saying was it was a new era, but it didn't mean that the death penalty had changed. It didn't mean that his holiness or the respect and regard for his holiness had changed. It was still necessary. Jonah was a man and was a prophet who knew God's nature well. And he knew it so well. Um, He knew that God would be gracious. He chose to disobey God. God told him to go to Nineveh and warn the people so that they could turn and repent. But because Jonah knew that God would... um, would relent he said I'm not going and he didn't go so he went in the opposite direction and he went to Tarshish he ended up in the sea in the belly of a whale and whether or a fish a great fish and whether he actually died when he went to shield is is debatable but he went through a tough experience but he learned through the whole thing that um that God is sovereign and he will do and can do what he wants to his people when he wants with Cain which is back in Genesis 4, we see that he was given a warning and some advice before he actually murdered his his brother, Abel. God said to him, if you do, at verse 7, he said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and it's for you, it wants you, but you should rule over it. So we are to master sin. We can master sin. The tempter will come. The temptations will come. And we can choose not to go with them. We can choose not to side with them. And God helps us in that. I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. But God keeps his promise and he will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time you are put to the test, he will give you the strength to endure it and so provide you with a way out. It's important to learn the scriptures. That's one of them that when I first became a Christian and a few years ago, um, they made us learn things. And I managed to learn it. And you don't forget them. They come back. It's like the, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. We see that David, King David, a man after God's own heart, he broke three of the commandments in one go. He coveted, he coveted Bathsheba. Um, the wife of Uriah, he committed adultery with her and he then murdered Uriah to get him out of the way and to cover up what he did. God was not pleased. There was a baby, the baby was conceived, but the baby died. And it seemed really harsh because David pleaded, but David fasted, he pleaded, he begged. But God said, no, it's not okay. But still, the grace of God was that David and Bathsheba then went on to have Solomon, who became the king. David's line did not end. But David also knew that even though he sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his brother and his sister, he knew that he had sinned against God. He says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. We have to remember that if we don't relate rightly to one another, it's not good for our relationship, but it still hurts God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He doesn't miss it. And also, finally, just to mention Jesus, I say just to mention Jesus. In Matthew 5.18, he says that he came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to, de- to destroy it or do away with it. He says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
So yes, things have changed, but the law he's saying is still the same. We are still supposed to relate rightly to God. And even unless Jesus has changed or said something different to what was said before, it still applies. We're not under law, but I mean, we've, we were given the Ten Commandments. Jesus sums them up in two. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then later on, he says, love others as I have loved you. It's all about love, but it's all about relationship, relating to him rightly and relating to one another rightly. The wages of sin is death. So moving on to my third point, and this one is where I'm saying it involves, by contrast to God's nature, it seems to involve a grave injustice. And if I was going to give this section a title, it would be called the gift of God. So contrary to his nature, as discussed earlier, and being a God of justice, who always does the right thing and treats everyone in a fair and reasonable way, his plan of justice um, for all mankind seems to include a seemingly grave injustice. And by that, I mean the following after an unfair and, and an illegal trial with false charges and lots of abuse, Jesus, who was actually innocent, was treated as guilty. He was sentenced to death. He was crucified. And so why did this happen? So focusing on things of the past, there were a number of reasons why Jesus died. In Acts 2.23, Apostle Peter tells us that it was by design he says, this man was handed over to you by God, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It had definitely been part of God's plan that Jesus would die. And we can see this also if you go back to Genesis 3.15, when God cursed the serpent, he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed with a capital S. He shall bruise your head, as in he with a capital S will bruise your head. He will crush you, he will defeat you, and you shall bruise his heel. You will cause him, the serpent would cause him, to suffer a terrible but temporary injury. And this was a reference to the Messiah. The seed is a reference to the Messiah, or the Christ, the coming one, Jesus, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Moses also prophesied about Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And as part of the Davidic covenant, God assured David in 2 Samuel 7 that his house and his kingdom would be established forever and Jesus comes from the line of David. Many of the Psalms speak of the Messiah. Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 are just a couple. And a good number of the prophets also make mention of him. Isaiah 53 says, he foresaw, but he says, verse 3, he is despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. He's rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. The Messiah was known as the suffering servant. It's part of the plan. 
Um, another reason for Christ's death is that God wasn't happy with the way that things were. Although he'd given instructions on how we were to relate to him and worship him, the nation of Israel was repeatedly unfaithful to other gods. The Israelites, their worship of him was meaningless and empty, and they were going to him through rituals, but their hearts were not engaged. What they were doing was supposed to be an outward action that reflected what was going on inside, but it wasn't. They were just doing things, going through the motions. In Hosea 6, 6, he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He wanted loyalty and devotion. He wanted the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He wanted genuine recognition for his authority. He wanted obedience. God decided to implement a new covenant. Think as Sam mentioned, Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law in their minds and write them in their hearts. He also promised to forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And the blood of an unblemished lamb was needed to atone for the sin. Remember we had in Leviticus 17, he talked about that he gave us the blood to atone for the sins. So that blood was necessary. So Jesus fulfilled that by his death on the cross. And we do that. We remember the blood that Jesus shared. We remember the blood of the new covenant that was for the remission of sins. Jesus was the unblemished lamb. He was the sinless lamb. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we remember that he was born in a stable, which makes sense for a lamb. And indeed, the stable was the place where the lambs, the, the temple lambs, were held for sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God says, or the, uh, the writer says, that God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was sinless. And as is so clearly demonstrated in the story of Barabbas, Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He had a list of convictions. He was a robber. But Jesus took our place. And I do remember that, I don't know if anyone's seen The Passion of the Christ. There is a scene in The Passion of the Christ where um, they are at the judgment seat. Pilate, the people are, they, it's like a tiered arena and the judgment seat is up high. They've got seats like in a theatre, well, there were steps like in the theatre, and the people were at the bottom. You had Jesus on one side, you had Barabbas on the other side. Jesus has already been through lots that through that night and the way that they had abused him and convicted him and charged him. And Barabbas was there, and Pilate says, you know, it's your feast. Pilate knows he's not guilty. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. But he says, at your feast, I'm able to release someone to you. And so the people shout, they want Barabbas, they want Barabbas, even though they know Barabbas is guilty, they know that Jesus is not, they shout for him. But in this production, I feel that it was so poignant the way that Barabbas, he just loved the fact that everyone was shouting his name and he bobs, he's full of pride and he goes down the steps because he's because the people call for him, he gets to go free and he bounces down the steps and he's like, oh, this is really cool, this is fine, I'm going to get to go free. And we kind of know what he's, or we can anticipate what he was probably going to do. But as he went down the steps, he didn't take a moment to look back at the man who was not guilty. The man who had done nothing and who was going to take the pain and his place. And that's what he does for us. Jesus is standing there. He is not guilty. He was not guilty. But he took the pain and he took the shame. He took the humiliation, the suffering, everything. He took that so that we could be free. So that we could be free. We owe him so much. So fundamentally, 
as just described, the death of Jesus was because of love. It was because of love, so that he took our place, so we could go free. And in John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gift of God. So when Satan saw that Jesus was dead, Satan, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, when he saw that he was dead, he was happy. He thought that he had escaped the crushing defeat that was referred to in Genesis 3.15. But as we know, on the third day after Jesus died and was buried, he rose again. Hallelujah. He rose again from the grave. God was pleased with his sacrifice. He was pleased with the offering of his blood. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. He intercedes for us. When he was on the earth, he fulfilled his role as a prophet. He called people to turn and to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing a people for the kingdom that he would later be ruling. His name Christ refers to his his um, his office as prophet, priest and king. So while no one knows the day or the hour, we're told in Acts 1.11 that this Jesus who has been taken from you up into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back as king. The book of Revelation speaks of a number of events that are going to take place. But when he comes back, it's also going to be a time of judgment. So those who are Christ's, those who are saved, the righteous are going to be with him. And those who remain unrepentant, the wicked, they, anyone, it says Revelation 20, verse 15 says, anyone not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verse 10, where it says that the devil who deceived them, the nations, he will be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever. The lake of fire is not a fun place. Satanic rebellion will be crushed when Jesus returns. All things will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and God will wipe away every tear from, our, from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. There shall be no pain, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that is, that is the end of my message. But basically, in keeping with his identity, God has the power and the authority to rule. It's his creation. It's not for us to have opinions about what the way he wants things to run, the way, the way that he's established the earth. But he has a loving nature. He wants us to win. He wants us to succeed. Every person, he wants us to win and to succeed. He wants to have relationship with us forever. Forever. He wants us to walk in righteousness. But sadly, mankind often messes up. We often miss the mark. We often get it wrong. And sadly, the wages of sin is death. But he has sent his son because he loves us and possibly preaching to the converted complete, totally. But he loves us and he's made a way of escape. 
all we have to do is receive his son, acknowledge our sins, acknowledge that we haven't lived the way that God wanted us to, but no, identify that his son came and has taken our sins upon himself so that we can be free. And as long as we acknowledge that, we too can be saved. We too can be saved. The difference between receiving his mercy and receiving his wrath is repentance. It's deciding to no longer do the things that he doesn't want us to do. And for anyone here today who has never received Jesus as their Saviour and Lord, this is the time to do it. The t- today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to do it. So please make yourself known. You can raise your hand now or you can raise your hand later, but you speak to us and we will help you to say yes to Jesus. Amen.